I'm Nick. And I'm Justin. We are the Epic Film Guys, and we'd like just a moment of your time to talk about an extremely important event coming up this May. Last year, we hosted the live stream for The Cure, a 12-hour live stream fundraiser where we raised $2,500 for the Cancer Research Institute. 86 cents out of every dollar raised goes to research toward finding a cure. And this year, we're aiming to smash that goal, and we need your help to do it. Join us from May 18th through the 20th for 30 hours of amazing live stream content from us and a whole host of amazing podcasters who will be joining us to try to reach $5,000. For more information, please visit www.livestreamforthecure.com. Together, we can make a difference. semi-intellectual musings we turn our backs on humans to talk all things animals with the creator of the species podcast mac and murphy we're also joined by tracy for a roundtable chat about pet cloning banning certain breeds of dogs and what happens when a pet needs a new home this is for the love of all species woman woman tell me your name let me have my life free Hey, Matt. How's it going, buddy? It's, uh, you know what? Happy Pie Day. Happy, Happy pie, day. pie Day. Yeah, it took me, um, took me 3.14 minutes to figure out what that meant. Uh, that's as far as you can go, 3.14? Yeah, that's it. Then I figured it out because I'm a genius, bro. And, right. uh, speaking about another genius, uh, we should say, uh, rest in peace, uh, Stephen Hawking. Yeah, Steve-O. Steve, uh, it was good while you were around. Uh, yep, that's it. That's all I got. <laughs> well, I will say, man, uh, you know, he, he lived into his 70s, I believe, uh, with ALS, which is yep. pretty remarkable. Um, yep. So I think he led a full life and he really influenced and changed the world. So uh, Yeah, thanks. I mean, uh, it's incredible. His reach is phenomenal. I'm a, a sociologist, as uh, you know, most of you are aware. And uh, Stephen Hawking has a place in my dissertation. I talk about his theory of the black holes and how he basically said, uh, we've been looking at it wrong the whole time. So let's switch up the definition, change the metaphor, and move on with our lives. He was uh, a brilliant uh, scholar uh, and a loving father and husband. So, um, you know, condolences all around, but uh, his legacy, uh, we haven't seen the last of it. That's for sure. We're going to be talking about Steve-O for a while. Holy epistemology, Philly, that uh, I think I know how you fit that in there. Um, uh, but we'll save that rabbit hole for another time. Uh, speaking of rabbits, uh, yep. we have a couple of guests on this speaking episode. Of How's rabbits, that for a segue? <laughs> that was, I love that segue, Matt. Uh, speaking of rabbits, welcome, everyone. This is Semi-Intellectual Musings, podcast that looks at social sciences, humanities, and arts. We do it by looking at books, uh, music, film, sport. We do it by giving you our honest opinion, but we also do it. By bringing on guests, and today we will be talking about all things animals. 
with uh, someone special. So, uh, Matt, how, how about we bring him on right now? Let's do it. Hello, Mackin. Welcome to Semi-Intellectual Musings, and thank you for joining us today. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for joining us, Mackin. Yep, no problem. For those of you who are not in the know, Mackin has a relatively new podcast called The Species Podcast. Each week, we learn about a new animal or species, and it's not only about facts, although each episode comes with a long bibliography, so it's right up our alley, Matt. But the Species Podcast is about stories and storytelling, and mixed with vegan ethics, uh, boy, it is a fantastic listen. Uh, I'm hooked. I'm hooked. I have to sell, tell you that, uh, Mackin. Um, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to hear you're listening. I've been listening to your show as well. well thank you. That's awesome. We're mutuals, mutuals. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yes. But, we, but before we get into all that, uh, we want to know a little bit more about your show. So tell us, um, when did you start? What's your show about? Uh, you know, give us the, the elevator pitch of what the Species Podcast is. Right. So I started Species Podcast um, just a couple months ago. I've been really enjoying it. Uh, basically, every week I choose a specific species of animal and I get all the facts out there, like you said, um, but it's not just about the facts. It's not just about the biology. I also try to get into why the animal matters, who the animal is. And um, mm. honestly, the, the animals that come on the show, so to say, the, anim the animals that I get the opportunity to talk about, every one of them is amazing. Like there, like there has not been a single episode that I, that I've gone into re researching and, um, and haven't been surprised by something. There's always something there. Um, like for, like, for example, um, talking about beavers, I was, I was very interested in them. Uh, the, the North American beaver, yep. um, relevant to you guys in Canada, the, I That's think awesome. the Canadian mammal, right? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, yes, it's very important to us out here. <laughs> yes. I, I got a feeling that's the episode me and Phil both, uh, listened to first. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, I mean, when I started researching that, I was very much interested in why they build dams, why they do the things they do, what they can do. Um, and I, I had no idea that they could build dams that were, I mean, there's, there's a dam right now in Northern Alberta up there with you guys. That's 850 meters long. Yeah. What is a, what is a rodent <laughs> doing building an 850 meter long dam? And so there's stuff like that. Um, but it also I mean, that's that's not really biology. It's kind of a fun fact, an amazing story. Um, but animals also kind of drag me down alleyways of like historical stuff because um, mm. the, the beaver again, um, the uh, I get into the North American hat trade yep. and all this yep. stuff and how um <laughs> And like silk hats versus felt hats and all this stuff. And so I end up in these really weird, um, weird places um, that animals surprisingly um, can bring you. Well, on our show, I think uh, the metaphor we use is rabbit holes. So yeah. I think that's personally <laughs> what I enjoy most about your show. And I was so surprised about like, so the first half, you uh, give us all the, the beaver facts, let's say. And the second half, you hit us with the, the deeper questions. So I enjoyed in that episode, like questions about like, how human are they like like the things they can do are so remarkable their ingenuity it's so so outstanding that uh brings up this question about like you know they're not just like dumb little rodents like swimming around in a pond somewhere, right right, right. Yeah, and you know so. and you know what's funny there matt is that um right there when you well, just when you started you said rabbit hole right and mm -hmm. that just that's just an, another example of how animals are so integrated into our society like we ignore them we don't pay attention to them and yet 
like rabbits, they jump into our conversations and we end up saying things like rabbit hole right. um, or busy as a beaver yeah. to d take a take another idiom that kind of sneaks in there from the animal kingdom. And we end up realizing that even when we're not talking about animals, we end up talking about animals. Mm. But yes, I think rabbit hole for um, for a myriad of reasons is um, a perfect way to describe the places that animals take you. Yeah. So one of the things that so we, we met on Twitter uh, following the beaver episode. And my comment was that, you know, beavers, uh, they're kind of like uh, Marxists, you know? Oh, yeah. Yes, <laughs> I forgot that that was even how we. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, but, you know, aside from uh, talking about the linkages uh, that humans could see in animals, how did you get into talking about species in the first place? What's a little bit of the backstory around the podcast? Hmm. Well, I guess it would be it would be kind of a long story in that I've always been interested in animals all my life. I was always a young kid with the pictures of animals, the books open, watching David Attenborough on the TV. And um, and I guess later, kind of a college age, I started getting into the philosophy of how we treat animals. Mm. And that kind of brought me back down um, this rabbit hole, so to say, the, the, the <laughs> animal kingdom's rabbit hole. Right. And so I've ended up um, ended up becoming really interested in what they can do, um, because once I kind of got into the philosophical angle on animals, it was almost unavoidable to get into the biological place. Because when you mm. start talking about why animals matter, like if, as, as you said, Matt, um, they were in fact, and you acknowledge that they weren't, but if they were in fact um, just dumb rodents in a pond, um, then maybe using them as hats wouldn't be so bad. But then when you realize that they're that when you kill a beaver, for example, um, their partner is going to mourn and their family is going to be destroyed, um, mm. it, it it becomes a more difficult question. And that's why um, people try to uh, um, uh, other vegans, especially, will try to separate the biological abilities and the biological realities of animals existence from the philosophical things. And they end up missing the mark when they're talking to a lot of people, because if if you tell the average person it's it's wrong to let's say kill a cow, um, then their their response is going to be, "Well, cows are idiots, right. and I'm not." Right. So so I get to eat them. Right. And then you show a cow, um, you show them a video of a cow, let's say, um, crying as their as their child is being taken away from them, and suddenly that hits home a little bit more because you see a cow exhibiting a behavior that a human mother would exhibit um, that involves intelligence and involves emotion and grieving. And suddenly it becomes a different story. And so you have to introduce the biological realities and the um, and the practical abilities of the animal to get to that. And so and, and my show, my show isn't some propaganda. I don't spend it proselytizing. I'm I'm just there to enjoy the animals, enjoy the fantastic stories they bring. Um, but I can't pretend that those stories aren't important for convincing people um, of their value. So um this conversation is going to rapidly go down the vegan rabbit hole, so to speak. Um, <laughs> so you've talked the celery lined the rabbit celery hole, yes, the celery lined rabbit um, hole, like all rabbit holes. So I, I'm going to give you a carrot, and I'm going to say you've talked about the slow transition to uh, a vegan lifestyle. And can you tell us a little bit about how you view the role of education and particular? particularly about animal rights and animal ethical education in vegan advocacy. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I as it goes for me, I personally, I personally feel that, um, that 
with the average person with no knowledge about um, about animals, no real knowledge about animals, no real history talking about animal ethics, will um, will generally kind of not even be able to have the argument because they won't understand it. Right. And um, and I think the process of bringing someone along, I think it's very organic in that you start with the step of of appreciating animals and saying, "Wow, they really are amazing." Um, until you eventually get to the point where you say, okay, they're amazing. What can I do for them? What can I do to protect them, to let them have their lives? What can I do there? Mm. And so I think that um, the root of education to advocacy, um, the root of education to action um, is an extremely natural one. Um, I think it's almost, I would actually say it's an unavoidable one. Mm. I think that if you learn about animals, you're going to love them. And if you love them, you're going to want to treat them better. Right. So to me, veganism, one of the, if you're not going to make the moralistic or the humanistic argument where you're saying like we should love them on the same levels as humans, uh, maybe the economic argument as well, like it is not really that economically viable to eat animals for food. Um, It's more economically viable to be at least vegetarian, if not vegan. Right. Maybe that's another layer to add to the argument. It's definitely a layer. Um, I'll tell you right now, it's actually not my layer. Um, but but for example, I mean, my roommate, um, he he is a vegetarian because of the environment. And there there's a pretty hard to argue with. I mean, I, the lowest number I've seen floating around there is that 14% of global greenhouse emissions are due to animal agriculture. Mm. I've heard much higher numbers, um, but that's the lowest one that anyone can get. And that's in that same study, which is, um, I believe, from UNESCO, I'm not sure, that's equal to transportation. And so people will be driving their Prius, um, driving their Tesla, um, and still eating their hamburgers. And you have to wonder, you could spend, if you really want to help the planet, um, you could drop a few thousand dollars to buy your fancy electric car, or you could stop eating meat. And it's interesting the choice people make. But again, Matt, I'll say that, that that's not really my argument personally i understand its merits i absolutely appreciate it um but it's it's for me personally it's um it's that um as an individual i can't rationalize a clear dividing line between um between humans and the rest of the animal kingdom um that confers moral weight right for, for me it would be for me personally if you're interested um uh there there is a spectrum of animal rights um, f- from my perspective, um, I believe that more intelligent um, animals do deserve more consideration. Mm. Um, I would feel more sympathy for the pig than the chicken. Right. So that would put me in a different category than some other. I still feel absolutely sympathy for the chicken. I think they're underestimated and we can talk about their abilities if you have time. Yeah, yeah. But um, but but I would have more sympathy for the pig, whose intelligence is arguably um, on the same plane as chimps. Um, certainly, in my opinion, I could I could argue someone into the ground um, who believes that dogs are on the same plane as pigs. That's just simply um, simply not true. Well, you haven't you haven't met my Shih Tzu, but uh, we'll put that, we'll <laughs> is your Shih Tzu quite intelligent? Oh, she's she's very intelligent. Yes. She's very special Shih Tzu. Uh, I've um, had three dogs and. Um, <laughs> and none of them are particularly bright, <laughs> but I love them all. Um, yeah, I love, I love the them all terribly. Um, um, so it, it's interesting. Does that, I just wanted to ask a quick follow-up. Does that, um, for one, 
I, I never thought that veganism would have a spectrum in, in terms of its morality. Uh, does that um, alienate you or do people feel alienated towards you? Some people will, stance? some people will argue with me. Like for, for example, I'm not someone who eats shellfish. I don't eat clams. Um, but I don't, I can't personally think of a convincing moral mm. argument for not eating them. Um, mm. as long as it's done in a economically viable and, um, like a uh, environmentally way. viable yeah. way. Yeah. yeah right. It's, it's hard to make an argument for, um, for an animal that has no brain. Um, I, I uh, given that um, almost all the neuroscience is united in the idea that the brain is the center of experience, it's hard to imagine someone creating a compelling argument that a member of the animal kingdom, such as the clam, has an experience that is sovereign and should should be inviolable. But it's for me, for me personally, though, I, I don't eat any members of the animal kingdom at all. So I am what you would call a true vegan in the sense that I that I do not eat any members of the animal kingdom or any products from animals. Mm. Um, but then again, um, it's that's personally, that's honestly for the clams. It just comes down to taste. I've never eaten clams. I've never right. eaten clams or shellfish. Right. So it's not even, and I, and I won't start, I'm not going to start, but, um, but for me personally though, it, it, I, I am a bit different from some other vegans um, who will say all animals are equal. Um, I personally, I personally think that there is a hierarchy. Um, I'm not even sure that humans are necessarily on the top, by the way. Right. Um, yeah. But I do yeah. think that there, I do think that there is a hierarchy, yep. and I and I am pretty sure that humans are on the top. But um, but I've heard there's a computer scientist. Um, the, their name is um uh, lost to me at the moment. But there's a computer scientist who argues that the that the octopus, in terms of pure brain power, the octopus um trumps the human. Um, because their, their entire body is basically a brain is how they put it. Um, and I've also, I mean, all the measurements that show that humans have the largest brain, if we're going ba brain to body ratios, um, ants have a larger brain than humans. Absolutely. And if we're going pure yeah. brain size, we're going to end up with elephants or and orcas being at the top of the pyramid. Right. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. yeah. So, so by what metric are humans are on top? I mean, it's it's partially just looking around me and saying these these animals seem to be the smartest. But I mean, who knows? Who knows about the secret life of um, secret life of orcas and things like that? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so it's but but yes. To to just get back to your question, I'm sorry. It's uh, it's I I think that most vegans would agree in prioritizing the life of the human over the pig and the pig over the chicken. But I'm not sure. I think a lot of them would also, um, if you gave them a gun, a chicken, and a human, and told them to shoot one or the other, um, maybe they would have a tough time. I don't know. Um, that's not me personally. That's not me personally. Right. Um, so, Mac, in, within the vegan world, and you know, I as you speak of like a spectrum, but uh, in your world, so your philosophy, um, is everyone becoming vegan um, sort of like the end goal? Hmm. And I guess related to that, um, a question of, is it viable for me? Per oh God, I, I really don't want to alienate any vegans listening, but for me personally, I think that, I think that there's no moral way at all to kill an animal to, uh, to eat them. I, I, I think that that's, um, whatever pleasure is gained from the, the, like, you can see that, um, vegetarians are, they live longer, their, their hearts are healthier. Um, you can look that up. It's in time magazine. It's in the journals. It's the, 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 whether it's, whether it's because vegetarians are on average richer or however, there are pl probably plenty of confounding things, but they are healthier. So you can mm. live a healthy life yeah. at the very least. You can live a healthy life. Um, They're so free at very least. 
<laughs> yes, and the, the lack of stress from being guilt-free probably makes them live longer, I'm sure. Um, but the... <laughs> But so so it's not that. And then economically, you can see the studies that a veg- that meat is the most expensive thing on your plate, unless you're eating avocados and almonds, as many right, yeah. vegans ironically are wont to do. But yeah. in, but unless you're putting putting those fancy foods on your plate, uh, meat is going to be the most expensive thing. And so I do think that um, that veganism is viable for everyone. Mm. Um but I will also say that in terms of an end goal, I mean, there, I, I, like I said, there, I don't think there's a single ethical way to eat meat. Um, but I do think I can imagine a situation where, like, for example, I know people who own chickens, right? Yeah. And I, they, their chickens are like their pets and they pick up their eggs because they're laying them all over the garden. And I don't see anything immoral about putting that egg on the frying pan. Okay. I just don't. Um, but... As long as they're as long as they are, in fact, tre- treating their chicken like their dog right. <laughs> and, and the chicken has a great life. Right. Um, I could see a similar situation with a cow, but the cows, it is trickier. The cows, it is trickier yeah. because in order to take milk from the mother, um, we have bred cows to overproduce milk. Yep. So you can have excess milk, so to say. Um, but you do have to get the cow pregnant um, and then she has to um, and then she has to start lactating for her for her child. And you have to take the milk. And I, I have a harder time seeing how that could ever be um, viable. I'm sure there's an ethical way to do it. But if there's an ethical way to drink milk and eat eggs, if there is one, and there, I don't think there is right now, I'm not eating eggs. I'm not drinking milk. Right. Um, but if there is an ethical way to do vegetarianism as opposed to veganism, I could imagine that. I don't know if it will happen. Mm. So I would be I would be thrilled with um, with global ethical vegetarianism um but i almost think that global veganism is more realistic Mm. and i think uh i don't know people have said to me uh that um and people say to vegans all the time that that it's not realistic right but think about this the vet the modern ethical vegetarian movement only started in the 1970s the modern iteration of it the older one probably 1870s yeah um but the modern one 1970s with peter singer right and that's before even veganism and now veganism's a thing as well and as a demographic vegetarians and vegans are skyrocketing into the population it's a growing group right and so if you would expect in 40 years for 40 years ago it wasn't even a thing right or sorry 50 years ago wasn't even really a thing and now there's not a single restaurant that doesn't have that little vegetarian (laughs) or vegan label next to the dishes Yeah, yeah so for people to say you're being unrealistic I would say you're being unrealistic because mm. think because also also think about how every single generation right gets to the point where they're the grandparent and their grandson or granddaughter is sitting on their lap and says granddaddy how could you have done that right, right? right. like from for my parents generation it would it would have been homophobia mm-hmm. right yeah. it would have been how could you have believed that gay people couldn't get married and they'd say i i don't know it was just the time yep. right yep. Go back another generation, at least in America. Um, my, this would be the Irish for my side, but Americans going back another few generations, it would be segregation. And they would say, well, it was just the way it was. And before that it would have been slavery, right? And so that's the grandparent saying, well, I just, it was just the time. I had never, I had no idea. And I can definitely see it being the case, right? That one day I'll have, I hope this is the case, I'll have my grandson or my granddaughter on my lap and they'll say, granddaddy, how could you have eaten meat? 
And I'll say it was just the time. That's what I hope anyway. And then those that happens to every generation. It's going to be something. There's going to be something that we're doing that's unethical, that surprises us. Because that's been the case with since the start of America. That's been the case. I mean, it, it wasn't the case before that. This is kind of a new trend in terms of the generational moral reform. Um, but it's a new trend that's a very real trend. And it's a continuing one. It's absolutely a continuing one. And it's almost as if um, it's almost as if it's hard for people to eat ethically within the industrialized food system that we live in right now. So I, th- I think that's, um, it's an interesting challenge, but you're right. There are options out there, uh, provided, I guess you can afford them. But as you say, eating meat is perhaps the most expensive way to consume calories in our modern industrialized food system. It's getting more convenient. Certainly if you're in an urban environment, if you're in Boston, if you're in New York, you can eat vegan cheap and easy. I mm. understand that some people in more rural environments will have a hard time even being vegetarian. I understand that. That's that's kind of the way it is in some places. I think that it's possible for almost every part of America to get away with it, but I think I think there are definitely still environments where um where it'd be very difficult. But again, in urban environments, cheap and easy. Maybe not always convenient, yeah. but cheap and easy. All right, I'm going to move you a little bit away from uh, vegan, but not too far away from it, because I think it's something that you hold yeah, close to your heart. Yeah, let's get out of this rabbit hole. Um, it's terrible in here. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> likes it here. The, li- the listeners are leaving by the dozen. Whoa. Come on. Let's well, I'm not going to pull you out yeah. right yet. You haven't got, you haven't, uh, you haven't dug deep enough. Um, but on the uh, Mikey podcast, the Mikey pod podcast, um, you touched on the idea of Darwin's influence. And you said uh, something along the lines of that Darwin has done more for animal r- rights uh, than any of us may attribute to him. Um, yes. Our listeners uh, know Darwin, uh, Chuck. Uh, can you expand a little bit on uh, what you see uh, as being the scientific side uh, of uh, Chucky's uh, kind of research and discovery and uh, maybe link that to vegan ethics and morality, as you were just talking about? Absolutely. So you see... If I, I, um, I've written a paper on this and I've, I've read a lot of it. I've got all my Darwin books, um, within reach right now. Um, I've got all of his that works. Is impressive. Um, yes. Um, well, you know what I'll say, I'll say all of his published works that are accessible and my girlfriend has stolen, um, from her school library. Don't tell anyone, but she's stolen, um, a couple of his, uh, more like less published works, mm. so to say, um, something that you wouldn't see new copies being produced. You can still get the old copies on eBay if you really try. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so so I so I have all of his I have all of his mainstream works, and um, and I'll I'll tell you that that without Darwin there is no logic for animal rights. There there just isn't, especially at least not in the Western world. You can go the Buddhist route, and then you've got a whole other system there where it's a religious system. But if you start in our world, the Western world. Um, then you're starting in a place where man was created apart from the rest of creation and and uh, God brought forth the fish and the birds and the cattle for man's enjoyment. Um, the animals exist for man. And, and obviously scientists were grappling with this because they were like why does the parrot exist because right. he doesn't do us any good. Like what is the parrot doing over there? The utilitarian and they make argument, weird conclusions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and they make weird conclusions that um, that the parrots were created because they're nice to look at, and um, and I would agree they're nice to look at, but they weren't created for us. They 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 were as much evolved as us. We're we're cousins. Um, 
but yeah, so the so the logic is is that if humanity, if humans are just another another animal, right? Like assuming no one's willing to give up the fact that humans have moral value, and humans are just another animal, then how do you justify giving moral weight to your animal but not the other ones? Right. I think there are ways to do it, um, but I don't think that there are necessarily very rational ways. Like if we look at say intelligence, and this would be Peter Singer's argument. Um, and obviously, actually, after Darwin, the first um, the first animal rights movement came up immediately after um, the descent of man. And frankly, the, the timing is not a coincidence. Mm. I mean, there, there's a lot of logic that was taken from that. And you can read this, the speeches of animal rights activists at that time who were saying, um, who were quoting Darwin in their speeches. Um, Darwin was not a vegetarian or a vegan, um, but he provides the logic. Without Darwin, there is no logic. Anyway, so Peter Singer's argument... Um, is basically that if you look at, if you give, say, a profoundly disabled human moral consideration, right? They're not very intelligent. Um, they're, let's say, specifically, they're less intelligent than a pig. But they're intelligent enough to have feelings. They're intelligent enough to go through some tasks. And they're intelligent enough to live life. It's hard to make an argument for eating the pig, but not for eating the profoundly disabled human (laughs) unless you're arguing and i'm singer for you right that well yes (laughs) and uh you know what don't associate me with peter singer but but that's that's the argument that he comes up with and it's hard to deal with that line because without without resorting to basically tribalism where you say the humans are my people and that's why i care about them and if that if you admit that's the only reason you care about them that's fine but it's not exactly it's certainly not um it's certainly not very emotionally compelling, is it? It's it's a bit it's a bit um, it kind of reeks of the same things as as nationalism and racism, and basically that it's like these yeah. are my people and that's why, as opposed to this kind of more noble um, objective um, perspective on it, where you where you take a trait um, like intelligence or sentience or emotion and, and look at that instead. You know, uh, listeners from the social science, humanities and arts will probably cringe at the idea that Darwin could lead to something productive. Uh, That probably is the legacy of someone related to Darwin, but Herbert Spencer and the development of social Darwinism, which, um, you know, on close read, uh, Spencer's Mm. work uh, dwarfs, um, you know, doesn't even stand to the test of Darwin's work. Uh, Darwin, who is uh, read and written about by Marx. Um, and, uh, you and I, Mac, it went a few rounds on Marx. I don't think I convinced you to pick up, yep. uh, anything by Marx anytime soon, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> Mackin, uh, you know, from a podcast that talks about a different species eats week to, uh, vegan ethics and morality background to how Darwin really laid the groundwork, uh, for understanding of, you know, really, um, the benefit and uh i'm i'm going to say that if you read darwin closely you're going to get to love a lot of the same species that your podcast talks about yeah i think i, I think uh, that's a book i'd recommend by darwin is the expression of emotion in uh man and animals beautiful uh it's a it's a great little book got a lot of pictures in it yep and um he basically he was way ahead of his time yeah. we didn't we didn't start um legitimate biologists did not start acknowledging emotion um in animals until almost a century later that's crazy um and and that's why that's at the same time as everyone who's ever owned a pet knows that animals feel emotion yep. 
um, oh, and okay. yet scientists were describing yep. their actions in terms of like evolutionary drives and maybe our emotions are all just evolutionary drives they probably are yeah but um but as in as much as you can use you can say that an animal doesn't have emotions you can say that a human doesn't and so darwin was about a century out of his time because it, it didn't it took until maybe when elephants weep probably that was the mm. next big book yeah. on um on comparing the emotions of humans and animals yeah. but i mean darwin darwin beat them to the punch by a long way All right, we're, and his book is great we're gonna hold the conversation on the intersection between science sentience and emotion for our roundtable discussion but before we do that uh Mackin, can you run down where folks can find your podcast oh yes of course just search species species spelt normally on any of your um favorite podcast apps i'm probably already on there itunes is best or you can go to species.libsyn.com, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N. Um, so species.libsyn.com. Um, and all my stuff's on there. So please scroll through, pick an animal. Um, if you've got kids, um, I've been recommended mm, for kids. Yep. The children's book author, Hannah Holt, recommended me for kids. Um, she's writing something for Penguin Books. The, um, the PDX Parent Magazine said that I was one of the top 10 best new podcasts for children. And I'm not oh. trying to make a children's podcast uh, adult. Honestly, I got to stop you, Matt Mackin. I, the first time I listened, I'm like, when Violet's old, my seven-month-old, eight-month-old now, yeah. is old enough, she'll listen to this. Yep. That's like, awesome. It's, it's perfect yeah. for kids, and I don't really know why. I was just waiting for you to swear. Honestly, <laughs> yeah, you no, know. I never so, swear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's no, it's, it's a very high educational content, and um, totally. it's serious, but it's... um. But I try to keep it accessible yeah. despite yeah, its seriousness. Serious so, but approachable. Yeah. 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 So I oh. so I, I, I know kids enjoy it. Um, most of my listeners are adults, um, but there are a lot of adults who have their kids listen with them and they kinda it's not a kid's podcast. Like both the parent and the kid can listen to the car and look forward to yeah. it. So so that's totally. something that I've been really happy about. Awesome. You are striking yeah, check it out. a great balance. Uh Mackin, thank you so much for joining us. Um stick around. No problem. Uh, when we come back, we're going to have a roundtable discussion with Tracy, Mackin, Matt, and myself. Uh, again, thank you for joining us, Mackin. Yeah, no problem. Join the conversation by finding us on Twitter at the underscore SIM underscore POD or Facebook at The SimPod. We're always interested in show ideas, so why not send us an email at semiintellectual at gmail.com. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, or your podcatcher of choice. We love hearing from you, and if you leave us a rating or review, not only will you help others find us, but we'll read your fine words of praise on a future episode. Who doesn't like shoutouts, am I right? Today, we bring you the tunes of Michael Heron. Michael is a Brooklyn-based composer and performer. He combines elements of classical composition with experimental electronics and storytelling to create hypnotic and boldly intimate work that walks the line between Laurie Anderson... Peter Gabriel, and Dead Can Dance. He is also the host of The Mikey Pod. You can find that fine show at MikeyPod.com, and you can find Michael's music at MichaelHeron.com. Check out his Facebook page at MichaelHeronMusic and his Twitter at MichaelHeron. While you're doing that, here's a tune from his album, Tentative Armor, titled Invocation. This. This is...
not know it yet, but these are your hands, silver and forgotten. And these are your feet, calloused and golden. And this is all you anyway, and you are here. This is Semi-Intellectual Musings. I am one half of your hosting party, Phil Primo. And I'm Matt Sanderson. Today, we're going to have our very first roundtable discussion on Semi-Intellectual Musings. We are now joined by Tracy Forbes Bossley. Hello, Tracy. Welcome to the show. Hello. Happy to be here. Um, So I guess I should say, how do we meet Tracy? Um, Tracy spoke to me for the Chronicity series, the series that Phil and I are going to be releasing April 1st. Uh, so if you're listening to this, it might be out soon. Um, Tracy has Ehlers-Danlos and osteoarthritis, so we talked about that a lot. But then at the end of the conversation, I found out 
that she works at one of the largest no-kill shelters in her state and is also proud to proclaim herself as a pit bull advocate. So I knew we had this uh, uh, talk coming up with Mac, and I'm like, oh, we got to bring Tracy in. So uh, looking forward to digging into those topics, Tracy. Uh, I'm just going to kick it right off here, okay? Uh, Cloning animals has become technologically possible. Uh, It has attracted the attention of Hollywood, as do most uh, things that are shiny, new, and expensive. Recently, Barbara Streisand had her beloved dog, Samantha, cloned. Now Barb has two clone dogs, Scarlet and Miss Violet. The whole thing cost about 50000 US dollars, so not cheap. According to Via Gen, uh, a leader in the business of cloning pets, a clone cat costs around 2500 bucks. So why so expensive? Well, it involves a complex process of finding appropriate eggs, stripping those eggs of all trace markers, so the original DNA of the carrier animal, and then injecting it with the desired cloned DNA. So either you're dead or dying or old pet's tissue. You know, if I sound irate, I am, but I'm also quite puzzled by the whole process. It's complex and expensive and, you know, it deals with DNA stuff. It's, you know, I don't know. I'm a social scientist. But I want to open our roundtable on some of the other potential costs of cloning. Uh, Mackin, Tracy, have you heard of cloning your pets? Is it a thing that has registered in your worlds? Yeah, I'd, he- I'd heard of the Barbara Streisand uh, incident. Yes. I've, I've heard, of, um, heard of it happening before, too. Um, I had heard that one of the um, 9-11 rescue dogs had been cloned, yes. actually. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. So the idea is to find and then clone exceptional animals. So the case of the 9-11 rescue dog was that this breed or this individual puppy was exceptional at finding uh, people buried under rubble and that this is something that should be, I don't know, uh, replicated. Is that, am I using the right word? Oh, right, a valuable trait. and you, know. you can buy a hero dog for 25 grand. That's awesome. <laughs> I'd buy it. Right. Yeah. But I guess, you know, aside from cloning the animals that we love uh, or the exceptional animals that can do work for us, uh, I have a question of, is there already enough animals to go around? Like, do we need to be in the case of cloning, literally engineering animals uh, for our pleasure? My answer would be no. Okay. Tracy comes down (laughs) on a no. Well, there are um, exceptionally amazing animals sitting in shelters waiting for homes. Um, there are bright, intelligent uh, animals. Um, there are organizations that pull service animals from shelters and train them um, that are every bit as amazing at what they do as the animals that are bred for yeah. these occupations. And, um, and the, uh, the numbers of animals that are being euthanized in shelters, uh, it's staggering. Um, and so as long as that's happening to you know, wonderful, wonderful creatures, no, you know, we don't need to be breeding so many animals. So we certainly don't need to be cloning them <laughs> in my opinion. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that's the perfect answer. The, the one caveat I would say, I mean, that, that same, that same line of argument, um, applies to the breeding of animals period. Just, um, you shouldn't be buying new so to say when there are so many in the shelters um i think that in terms of are there i doubt that cloning is going to contribute that much if it's if it's so prohibitively expensive this is going to be a very minor issue in the overcrowding of shelters compared to 
um puppy farms let's say where i can mm-hmm. i can go down the street right now and buy it buy a dog for 70 70 bucks um but it, but what's interesting there and i hadn't heard of this before so i'm really talking off the top of my head if there truly is an animal that is exceptionally capable at rescuing people um rescuing humans it, it's hard to see why that wouldn't be for the greater good i understand that cloning can mess up um but if lives are saved as a result i can see a compelling case for um for cloning exceptional rescue dogs but then again i mean there's so much genetic diversity that it's hard to imagine that one animal is so much more um competent that you couldn't just breed those same traits into other rescue Mm -hmm. dogs so i'm not sure right Right. Breed those traits or even find those traits already out there. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And and so I think, um, and we were talking to Mackin earlier about the moralistic implications of all this and moral philosophy. So is the fact that we're literally cloning these animals for our pleasure, so for the hedonistic reasons, is that the thing that makes it morally reprehensible? And I'm thinking, I know Phil's thinking the same thing, but we, we did an episode in the past on Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the book that Blade Runner was based on. So uh, in that book, they actually were building animals for people's pleasure um, and so, sense of self-worth. So I wonder, is it the hedonistic qualities of cloning animals for our pleasure that makes it morally reprehensible? Well, for, from my perspective, yes, I think I think that it makes it not more not it's not what makes it morally reprehensible, but it's what makes it morally inexplicable. Yeah, it, yeah. it's hard. It's hard to make a compelling argument for spending fifty thousand dollars on cloning your dog um, when you can get other dogs that already exist. They're already in the world and are in need of care. Um, probably just a, a few blocks away, maybe a few miles, maybe maybe in the next town over, maybe in several towns over, but either way, it's drive away. And it's it's hard to see why um it's hard to see why that's justifiable. Mm-hmm. Um I also I also think it does contribute significantly less to the problem than the breeding of animals, however. And so it's 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 kind of um a drop in a whole ocean of problems. Yeah. Spending time in rescue though, I can't help but think of what kind of resources that $50,000 would buy (laughs) in terms of food and medical care and everything that those shelters need. (laughs) You know, my, my approach to it um, is a little different. Um, I kind of see a problem in the idea that um, by replicating or cloning DNA, that we can find the traits that are socially desirable And I'm one to kind of side with the idea that these dogs or cats or whatever learned uh, socially through interaction, uh, these traits that then we decide are desirable. And I don't think they're going to be able to get that just by a DNA clone. Um, So in my mind, like if you stretch, stretch it out to a philosophy is that um, our DNA contains how we socially uh, enter into relationships with one another. And I think that that is really a dangerous assumption to make. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm skeptical of that idea too. Um, Philip, I, I I don't, I I can't imagine that, um, that a cloned rescue dog is going to be any more competent than, I mean, honestly, look at the beagle brigade in airports. Um, this would certainly Mm, support um, Tracy's idea of finding those traits. Those are just, those are just beagles taken out of the shelter. Yep. Those are rescue beagles. They're not bred. Yeah. 
the the beagle brigade that you see in your airport that seems so fabulous they um they're they're not they're not specially bred at all they're they're just they're just beagles yep. they're, the the traits are already there for that yep. job i guess i wouldn't know about the sniffing out of rubble but i mean i could see a breeding program being advantageous there but certainly a cloning program sees a seems a little bit um inefficient maybe overboard yep. and perhaps ineffective yep. and you know uh, just again to echo <laughs> i think tracy's really great point is that fifty thousand dollars could be put to better use yeah um okay my last point about this and then we'll we can move on uh i think uh but it's a big point um most of this cloning um and the initial trials and experimentation have been done in south korea where as we know animal abuse laws are quite a bit different than they are in north america uh, in canada or the united states some anti-cloning experts have said that there has been a large amount of suffering from animals during experimentation phases and continues during the egg collection phase of the cloning process. Do either of you think that we need to move towards a ban on cloning pets? I think you could make a case for it. Yeah, I, mean, I, I do think you could make a case for it. Um, that's a big question. Yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> I, I, and I'm kind of coming down on the definitive, right? Like, do you want to ban it? Yes or no? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm not good at black and white. I'm not, I'm not good okay. at a hundred percent this right, or a hundred percent that. Do, so you maybe know? do yeah. we need to have some laws to regulate it then in your opinion, Tracy? Yeah. Yeah. There definitely needs to be um, regulation. There needs to be somebody watching, uh, you know, there needs to be a, a close eye mm-hmm. <laughs> on yep. these, on, you know, anything like yep. this. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what about you, Mac? And what do you think about having some regulations put in place around cloning uh, pets? I think anytime animals are involved, there should be regulations Um, in terms of whether there should be a ban on cloning. um, I think that cloning is immoral, not because of the act, the act of cloning is immoral, but because the failures um, in the act of cloning and the process of experimentation to achieve cloning um, lead to immorality. You end up with failures. Um, Not every cloning attempt is successful. And so you're willfully creating um, an animal that has been born to suffer. And that's not fair. Yeah. I mean, just recently, I'm just now remembering the, this piece of news um, that there was, um, I think it was two macaques, I'm not sure, but two, two, two species of primate, um, one species of primate, two members of that species were cloned um, successfully, I believe, in China. Mm. And um, I think that it's rapidly approaching. If you can do, if you can do uh, one species of primate, it's just humans aren't that far away. Yeah. Humans aren't yeah. that far away. And so I think that if... Um, I'm skeptical of any attempt um, to ban any avenue of science, um, but this avenue, where, what's at the end of this avenue? Right. Yeah. What, what, where, where, does, where does this road lead? Um, and it doesn't seem to be going somewhere necessarily productive. Yep. Um, but again, just, it's, it's, hard for, it's hard for me to make any vote that would um, preclude scientific inquiry, but... Um, I, I, I can't see any good coming of cloning for the animals or ourselves. Linked to the topic of regulation, the idea of banning uh, cloning brings us to the hot topic of banning or regulating certain animals from being our pets. Specifically what I'm talking about and what I want to talk about next is the banning of some breeds of dogs. Yeah, that's right. Um, so... When I knew that we were having Mackinac, and then we, I knew that we were going to have Tracy on, 
I I knew we were going to have to talk about the Ontario pre-specific legislation, BSL. So the other day I was in the pet store and I was talking to our pet store clerk and she gave me permission to use her name. It's a great name, Emily uh, Quackenbush. Uh, she gave me a good head start on this topic and uh, she's an active member of the Ottawa Humane Society. Mm-hmm. And um, I also shamelessly plugged our show to her. So if you would, everyone, could we just say a quick hi to Emily, new friend of the show? Hi, hi Emily. Emily. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Um, so I did some research. Uh, Ontario bas- uh, passed a breed-specific legislation in August of 2005. Um, it bans pit bulls specifically as a breed. Um, in a second, we'll get into how we can expect bylaw officers to also be geneticists and what the moral implications of snatching Fido and taking him off to the Humane Society to be euthanized are. But um, I think it would be interesting to just outline some of the details of the legislation itself, and then we'll get into some of the wider issues. So Bill 132 in Ontario is the Dog Owner Liability Act, a great acronym, DOLA. Um, The legislation bans pit bulls, as I said, in Ontario, And then it also places restrictions on existing pit bulls and toughens penalties for people who are found to be breeding or fighting pit bulls. Um, It bans the owning, breeding, transferring, importing, or abandoning of pit bulls. Um, It bans them when training them to fight. uh, That You have to get permission uh, if you are off of your property on someone else's property and you have them without a muzzle or a leash. Um, The leash needs to be a maximum of 1.8 meters long. Muzzle should be, and this is what I think is interesting, muzzle should be humane, but strong enough and well-fitted enough to prevent the pit bull from biting. Um, so it's interesting. The law took effect on October 28, 2005, and as I said, it put um, bylaw officers, for one, in a tough position who are meant to enforce this law, one, determining the breed of the dog, whether it's a pit bull or not, could be quite confusing, and I'd like to hear Tracy's thoughts on this. And uh, two, the penalties for violating this law are so severe, it's um, you know sterilization or euthanization. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe, Tracy, uh, can you speak to how difficult it is to peg the breed pit bull itself? Yeah, it's, well, it's very difficult. Um, um, so I, in the United States, most municipalities that have banned pit bulls um, don't actually ban the breed pit bull, but they ban dogs with the characteristics of mm-hmm. a pit bull mm-hmm. type dog. Um, pit bull isn't even really a breed in itself. It's um, uh, American Staffordshire Terrier, Staffordshire Bull Terrier, American Pit Bull Terrier, and what's the fourth one? Um, um, ah, I forget. But um, so they lump those into the pit bull type. Of dog, um, but um, uh, like the 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 city where I'm sitting right now, where my mother lives, um, it's the I think the uh, the way they define it is dogs with the characteristics of those breeds, which includes the large blocky head, the broad chest, um, and those specific physical characteristics. Um, and other cities close to here that do it are also based on those that appearance. So it's based on physical appearance. You could bring a DNA test that says there's not a drop of any of those type of blood in this dog. And uh, they'd say it's still banned based on the physical appearance mm. of these type breeds. Mm. 
So, um, so it's very hard, you know, it's very hard to pin that down, um, exactly what qualifies, what fits that, um, um, you know, that definition. Um, a lot of them, uh, are like the mistaken impression that if they have that head shape and that jaw shape, that, um, it's like bite strength or the myth of the locking jaws and things like that. So makes it difficult. It's um, almost like yeah. I know it when I see it, you know. <laughs> right. What I what I would want to ask is um is what what exactly is a breed other than a set of characteristics? Mm-hmm. Cuz given that there is no speciation and these right. aren't subspecies or even or they're not species or even subspecies, they're just different like a breed is just a set of characteristics. Right. Um is it not is it not more logical to ban the characteristics than then, the breed uh, well, i would like to know your right. definition straight do yeah do those do certain i guess we'll say personality um that's probably not the right word but um yeah do certain behaviors that make a dog dangerous go along with those same physical characteristics or do they not um you know why do we have the impression that these dogs are dangerous um uh, well, you could argue that it's because the dogs were used for fighting. Well, why were these dogs used for fighting? Is it because they are by their nature aggressive? Um, that they are, uh, that they do tend to attack more, that they tend to be meaner, those kind of things. Um, some would argue that no, it's actually because they're more trainable um, because they are mm-hmm. physically stronger. Um, and there are other things. And before the 1980s, 1990s, when dog fighting became a thing, um, you didn't associate those traits with these dogs. Um, back then, the dogs that we worried about were the Dobermans and the German Shepherds, and those were the ones that people wanted to ban. So um, how much of it is actually societal and doesn't have anything to do with the breed at all? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, well, so that's really the question. Yeah. yeah. Were pit bulls not bred and artificially selected for their capacity for violence? Um, were they not bred for those traits? They were bred for their trainability and their willingness to please their owner. And that's how but they their became... willingness. Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go oh, ahead. Oh, that's okay. They're strong. And if you train them to fight and that's what they you want your dog to do and your dog wants to please you, then it's going to fight. Right. So, so well, I guess it, with willingness to train their uh, to please their owner as an mm-hmm. isolated trait. If I, if would basset basset hounds have mm-hmm. plenty of willingness to please their owner? You know what? They're a bad example because of trainability. Let's say beagles. Right. Mm-hmm. Could I? I, I if no matter how much I trained a beagle, they're not going to be putting up the kind of attack statistics that pit bulls manage to put up I because mean, they're not as strong. They because they're not as strong. They don't okay. have the same bite strength. So they can bite and slash and tear, but they don't have as strong jaws. So, right. Yeah. So why is it then that, um, that other big dogs don't, um, that like there are dogs that are plenty bigger than pit bulls. I don't know about jaw strength. They are extremely muscular. Their necks are extremely thick. Right. Yeah. Um, but something, yeah. right. But if yeah. you, yeah. but if you look at the stats, I, I've, I've got a few, uh, just cause, um, since, Philip told me I, 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 you're going to be much more um, educated on this topic, but I've got a few studies in front of me, and um, all of them seem to unanimously agree that pit bulls are putting up just absurd numbers. Like the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia um, found that 51% of attacks were from pit bulls, and, 9 per- and 6% were 
were from mixes of pit bulls and another breed. Mm -hmm. um, another study found that um, that a 15-year study found that um, pit bulls were responsible for the majority of um, fatal dog attacks in the state of Kentucky. And just anecdotally, I mean, I know that right down the road for me. I mean, I'm in Boston right now. And, um, and there was an eight-year-old boy just out in his backyard and a pit bull from the yard over um, came over and tore him apart, right. killed him right there and ate right. him yeah. right in the backyard. I mean, like if getting rid of this, these set of characteristics saves even only one eight-year-old boy, like what's wrong? What's wrong with, I'm not saying euthanasia. I mm -hmm. absolutely, I abhor that idea. I think it's, it's morally reprehensible and logical. But what, what would you say, Tracy? Well, I, and I'm willing to be convinced. I'm mm -hmm. extremely um, easy to be convinced. And I don't know very much about this. But what would you say um, to, to me who, who believes that there's nothing wrong with ordering all these dogs sterilized? Like they can still have their great lives, but they just can't have kids. What's wrong with that? Um, well, I actually don't have a problem with, with spay-neuter programs for pit bulls. Um, if you take those statistics that you have, um, like what percentage of yep. attacks are by pit bulls, and compare them to what percentage of the total dogs are pit bulls in those areas, that's part of it. Oh. Um, if 50% of the attacks are by pit bulls in an area... Uh, usually close to 50% of the dogs in that area are pit bulls. So no way. Really? Mm. Yes. Mm. That, <laughs> yeah. That couldn't be in the oh, city, in this, in, wow, the, in the city of Philadelphia, a... you're saying that 50% of dogs, um, that in the Philadelphia children's hospital area are pit bulls. That's, uh, that's, that can't be true. It's, it's in a lot of the areas that those statistics are coming out. Okay. Yeah, it is, it but is not, not necessarily that specific study, but right. in other but, studies you've seen that. But yeah, yeah. yeah. A yeah. lot of the times okay. that is it. There are a lot of pit bulls. Mm. I mean, in, yeah. in my city, I, know, I never the, see them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In the shelter that I work with, 80% of the dogs in our shelter are pit oh, bulls. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of the dog bites in our city are going right, to be by pit bulls right. because that's what's out there. Right. <laughs> yeah. I go down to the uh, I go yeah. down to the MSPCA. It's um it's a stone's throw from where I am right now, and um and yes, the, there are pit bulls all over that shelter. But when I go into people's homes, there yes. aren't so many right. pit bulls, which kind of makes me think that even uh -huh. if pit bulls are more likely to be abandoned, um maybe yeah. due to some obstinacy, maybe due to a yeah. little bit of truculence in the pit bull genome. Oh. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Like why why would you say it is that um uh, you know what? I'm I'm going to look up dog ownership rates just <laughs> right, I'm, yeah. I just feel like, I feel like I never see pit bulls anywhere but a shelter or on the news uh, cuz they killed somebody. Well, that's why you see them that's why uh, you see them yeah. end up in shelters, right, Tracy? Like uh, is because you see these news stories of right. pit bulls attacking people. So people either give up their own pit bull because right, they don't the want the two. scorn from their neighbors, right? Um, and that's where the, it gets back to the social stigma, um, if not taboo at this point, of pit bull ownership. So, Tracy, I was wondering, um, I'm really fascinated by the fact that you work at this very large animal shelter. So I was wondering if we can get into some of the politics of um, animal shelters, essentially. Like, um, you mm -hmm. were also mentioning that it's a no-kill animal shelter as well. So I was wondering if you can just sort of share some experiences of your time 
working with the uh, the animal shelter? So, uh, yeah. Well, these days I work more with the cats <laughs> than the dogs. But uh, but yeah, we um, the so and when I say working, it's volunteer work that I do. So yeah, I'm and I call that. There, and but, I think we talked about yeah, this, but, but I call work, that yeah. work. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's still work. Yeah, yeah, it's still work. But uh, but yeah, the the uh, nonprofit organization that runs the shelter for the city of Kansas City. Um, we are the third largest open admission no-kill shelter in the U.S., um, although when you go to the second largest, um, which I think is Austin, they're like four or five times as large as us. <laughs> so there's a big step in size from from the next biggest to us, but uh, it's still a pretty significant accomplishment. Um, they took over um, six, seven years ago Um for this, when the city was running the shelter itself, and uh, they we had, they had a forty percent live release li- rate and uh, achieved better than ninety percent within a year, so wow. it's pretty amazing, you know, what they can do. Um, you know, they don't euthanize for behavior; they don't even euthanize for illness unless the pet is suffering, unless the animal is really suffering. So there are animals that live in hospice for as long as they can be comfortable and have a good quality of life. Um, we have a parvo, we treat parvo um, quite successfully um, as well. Um, we have special behavior programs, trainers on staff. I'm very careful about placing dogs that, uh, um, you know, appropriately in homes that are, that are um, you know, suitable for them. Um, I just do a lot of amazing things and, uh, what I spend a lot of my time doing these days is we have a um, a, a feral cat uh, behavior, rehab program. So working with uh, um, spending more time with the cats that come in off the street that uh, maybe don't need to go to a barred home, but maybe are more um, uh, with a little time and effort can become socialized and and go into an indoor home with the family. It just they just need a little a little attention to mm-hmm. to get them suitable for that. Um, we, uh, you know, neo, neo, sorry, neonatal kittens, <laughs> the bottle babies and, oh, wow, and those really? that come in. Yeah, we, we uh, take care of them and raise them and, uh, and uh, until they're old enough. And uh, my daughter and I do a lot of that, too. So we work with a lot of the bottle babies. And uh, so, so, yeah, yeah, and, you know, well, everything, everything that can be saved, we save. That's, that <laughs> and, sounds, uh, bottle feeding kittens. I mean, that just sounds yeah. like a slice of wonder. Um, oh, it is. It's awesome. It's like having a newborn, only they grow up fast. So, so. take a left turn <laughs> yeah. back into but, cynicism uh, and negativity um, over here. Um, what are some yeah. of the challenges that your shelter uh, faces? And then we'll kick it over to Mackin as well. And we'll talk more generally yeah. about challenges U.S. shelters faces. Yeah, the challenges are money, always enough money, space, having room for all of the animals. So, you know, easy to get crowded. Um, medical issues, you know, funding for that. Um we are in the process of building a new a new building, a new facility. Um, uh, they passed a bond issue last year, so the new shelter is being designed. And but in the meantime, we're crowded. We're in an old building that wasn't even meant to be an animal shelter, so there's never enough room. <laughs> so yeah, getting the animals you know out fast enough and taking care of them, um, you know, enough staff, enough volunteers, um, you know, just getting all the met, you know needs met. Um, Educating the public, you know, and people to uh, to keep their dogs, keeping animals in their homes. Um, um, they have a lot of outreach programs trying to help people keep their pets when they want to. Um, 
They have a food pantry. Um, you know, people simply want their pets but can't afford to feed them. Um, they try to give support in that way. Um, they try to work with training and, you know, dealing with behavior problems and helping people solve issues before they have to surrender a pet. Um, every animal that comes through the shelter leaves spayed or neutered. Um, I think that's important, too. As, like I said, I, you know, well, it is actually a law in Kansas City that all pit bull type dogs have to be spayed or neutered. You can't mm, you can't breed right. them in the city. So because we have an overcrowding and overpopulation yeah, issue yeah. with them. Yeah. So are you okay that, with that uh, law? Do you think that that's acceptable? Um, I am okay with all dogs being spayed or neutered, regardless of breed. Oh wow! Um, yeah, I, I, there are okay, always going to be more. Bob I just Barker. don't no, really sure. think there's. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I had <laughs> to. Price is exactly. right. No, I know exactly, exactly. Spay or neuter your pets. <laughs> so there's always going to be more of them coming out of the woodwork. Right. Mackin, so, I, yeah, I got a yeah, hint yeah. Uh, in your voice there that you don't necessarily agree with that uh, definitive all spayed neutered approach. Well, I'm just, I, mm-hmm. I see the, I see the logic. I understand. I guess, I guess yeah. it's hard to pass a law that you don't want, like, like Tracy, you wouldn't want uh-huh. for there to be no more dogs. And I believe right. that any law that's passed, even if I understand what the rationale, like you're stopping, mm-hmm. you, like, yeah. it, like yeah. there's always going to yeah. be more. And I agree with you. You're not going to get rid of dogs yeah. just by, by passing right. a law like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that like if I were if I were to pass um, if I if I were um, Trump right now um, I don't know what version of hell this is but if I were Trump and I um, I passed a um, I were able to pass a law banning pit bulls from being bred and to enforcing um, Spain neuter by law um, I would be happy with the result of down the line through no harm no cruelty but. Um, but down the line, no more pit bulls just don't exist. And those statistics, fifty-one uh, percent or whatever they are, um, we don't even have to think about them because they don't—they're not a thing, you know. And I'd be fine with that. Um, so I kind of think that, like, with passing laws, you want the law to be—you pass a law with the intent that it is enforced and that it does. That's just my does, opinion on yeah. how the yeah. legal system should work. But I don't know. What's your opinion on that? Well, I look at the laws. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I'm down here in the trenches looking at it from the practical point of view, as I know they'll never be officially enforced perfectly. So, yep. you know, <laughs> I guess I'm a little more practical in the way I look at it. It's like, yeah, there's always going to be more. The question um, of enforcement always comes up when we talk about governing laws, uh, restrictions, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, one thing that kind of came to my mind, and I'm going to close up with this, but I'll leave the last word uh, to Mackin and then to Tracy. Um, but it's regarding the types of species that we can have as pets uh, in our home. We've been talking about cloning. We've been talking about banning certain breeds of dogs. Um, but I would just want to bring it to the next little level, uh, you know, above and beyond what we see at shelters or in our homes. You know, would we consider a, a buffalo or a zebra a desired pet or a species, huh. right? Um, so, you know, I think there have been laws across the developed world that have sought to control which species we bring into our homes and domesticate. Um, and probably for good reason, right? So I'm going to throw it over to Mackin. Uh, where do we draw the line between which species we can take in as pets and which we cannot? So I have a developed, but not fully formed opinion on this, um, in that, I think that there are things that we can look at, see what animals are good for captivity, um, good for captivity in the pet sense. Um, and I mean the ideal sense, because most pets are not well taken care of. Right. 
Yeah. Um, but I do think that the owner pet relationship is actually it's one of the best relationships out there Absolutely. in terms of yeah. um, building up compassion for animals, but also just having a good life. Yep. I think that I used to think that therapy animals were bunk. Mm. Now I think that everyone should have a therapy animal. I, <laughs> I think that they're I great gonna agree with you. for people's yep. emotion. Yep. Um, I like I, I really did used to look down my nose at it. And, and, and now I think, gosh, it actually is great to have a relationship with um, with another species. I think there's something unique and beautiful about that. Um, but OK, so so where do we draw the line? I think that you can look at some things. You can look at home range. Um, for example, polar bear um, has a home <laughs> yeah. range of, I believe, eight thousand miles. Like it's for something ridiculous. <laughs> it's not really, but but it's but it's something. It's not that big, but it's something ridiculous. Um, they can they can they're they're out there for miles and miles and miles. And so if you put them in a zoo, even a huge habitat zoo, that's just not the same amount. And so you see that they're susceptible to zoocosis. Right. But then you take some species of primate. Um, let's say, for example, marmosets, which are very small animals. Um, don't necessarily have as big of a home range. They tend to be more happy in zoos. They seem to uh, mm. live out in this a more or less happy way. Um, There's so no I jaguars th- coming for them, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that sometimes sometimes the home range um, can be pretty indicative of how happy they'll be in captivity. Mm. Yeah, totally. I also think yeah. flight is a thing. Like I like I own a budgerigar. Um, they're extremely smart animals. They're extremely social animals, native to Australia. Um, they are the pound for pound language champion. They can learn um, hundreds of words, and the record holders know well over a thousand um, words of English. My Budgerigar speaks nonstop and sounds like a human when he does, and he is smaller than my hand. Um, But he's adopted, but he's adopted. And so whether it's moral to buy a new Budgerigar, I think that you can adopt any animal you like. If If an animal's bred, if an animal's raised in captivity... You're not reintroducing them to the wild unless you raise them in a in a program designed for that. I mean, we have such trouble with panda bears raising that all yeah. the researchers have to dress up like pandas. Yep. Otherwise, yeah. they will they'll never go back to the wild. <laughs> yep. um, which is a look up go Google images right now and look up um, <laughs> yeah. pandas being reintroduced to the wild, and you'll see a bunch of a bunch of fools dressed as pandas. Um, or check out my panda bear episode. But but yeah, so there's um so there's some animals that don't do well in captivity, and I think that adopting any animal is fine. Um, but you got to look at the species specific traits, dogs, pigs, pigs are great pets. Dogs are great pets. And that's frankly, because of a long process of domestication, probably coevolution, frankly. Hmm. Um, it's seen, uh, uh, there are more and more research seems to come out that, um, the process of domesticating dogs was not an active process by humans so much as a natural process. If you've seen the documentary of Timothy Mm -hmm. Treadwell out there with the bears who ultimately killed him um i think in canada actually <laughs> um but yeah, Tim- yeah. but timothy treadwell um accidentally domesticated a fox and you watch it and it's so natural the fox comes up steals his hat and then soon the fox is following him around everywhere yeah. trying to get more stuff right and it's just a very natural process so i think that i think that some animals good for domestication some bad i think that the line is hard to draw mm. um but it's pretty easy to see flight as one capability of flight um, and whether you have space for flight to be performed, I don't think it's okay to own right. a bird with yeah. clipped wings. Yeah. I think that unless they're adopted, like if you're going to own a bird, you should have space for them to fly. Um, and I think, um, I think their natural history, like happy bears are about the size of a dog, have a lot of behaviors that are similar to a dog, but because, but they don't do as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's just not yep. how it is. So I think you have to look at the species. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a species by species basis. Sorry if that was a long answer. Tracy, coming from the uh, shelter world, uh, you've probably seen a lot of things come in and out. Uh, 
What do you yeah. think? <laughs> we get some interesting ones. What do you yeah. think? Where do we draw the line yes. on what we can bring into our homes as pets? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, um, you know, I wish we would kind of stop with what we've already domesticated and, uh, you know, let the rest stay wild. Um, and I can't really say that scientifically speaking, but more along the lines of, um, um, you know, we ought to be good. We ought to be good with what we've got. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and uh, because it is, you know, we have the long history and, you know, uh, and it is like the dogs. It was a very natural process with dogs. And, uh, you know, they, they cohabitate with us so well. I'm not so sure the same thing to be said of cats. Right. It's, uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fine line that we walk with yeah. cats. And, um, and uh, I'm not so sure if we ever really did domesticate cats. They're just sort of there. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. I agree yeah. with that. Yeah. I think that if you look at the mm-hmm. phenotypic dif- uh, differences and uh, genetic differences between cats and wild cats, there's, yeah. it's minimal. And if you let, if you is, let a yeah. dog out into the middle of the woods, they're going to find people. Cat. Gonna right. go try to find some yeah, ice. They're, they're right. gonna be fine. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And honestly, yeah. look and at how we domesticate cats. The, the the cats in Boston are just in the city. I mean, it's absurd. Yeah. Like um house cats are, are are I don't know. I don't know if there's any such thing as a true house cat. Hmm. So no, no. The biggest problems that we have cohabitating with our cats is when we try to make them conform to what we want, right? Instead of conforming our lives to what they need. Ooh. So and that is why yeah. I'm a dog lover. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, uh, yeah, so, I'm uh, yeah, conformed but, to uh, dog. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. So, but 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 Mac and I like what you said about you know if you want if you really want one of these animals, adopt because yeah. there are ones out there where it's too late and they need a home, so adopt them. Yep. Amen. And, uh, and let's leave the wild ones wild. Yeah, <laughs> so. I agree. All right, folks, uh, I'm going to have to wrap it up. Uh, this was a awesome chat. Thank you so much for joining us, Mackin and Tracy. Thank you. Um, I, you know, I learned a lot and I have a different perspective on things now. Uh, Tracy, you've opened my eyes to some of the uh, difficulties that shelters can face. Uh, and Mackin, uh, you've made me want to turn to research to see just how many pit bulls are uh, living in my city right now, because uh, <laughs> the disproportionate number might uh, might impact my walking, my walking. Uh, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, and for some reason, I just want to do moral philosophy now. And yeah, I feel kind of gross about that. Yeah. So. Thanks, Mackin. Uh, I'm going to go eat salads. <laughs> I'm going to go take a shower. Yeah, I'm gonna go, oh, dear. Matt, go have a shower. I'm going to go eat salads for the rest of the week. Uh, thank you for joining us. <laughs> if, uh, <laughs> if you'd like uh, what you heard today, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at the underscore SIM underscore POD. We're on Facebook at The Simpod. Send us an email. Tell us what you thought of our roundtable all about the species we love. Semi-intellectual at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to the podcast at thesim.podbean.com. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, everywhere else on the internet uh thank you so much again mac and tracy for coming on the show yep that was great thanks thanks for being on guys thank you so we're gonna leave you with another song from michael heron michael is an artist and resident at tamerlane farm animal sanctuary where he created the solo multimedia theater piece the animal show which premiered in new york city in 2016 and continues to be performed in venues throughout the united states michael is also a proud vegan and podcaster So basically, he's going to become a good friend of the show. Please go check out Michael's work. You're going to find something interesting. We are absolutely sure of that. And if you like what he does and want to support him and help him make more amazing music, consider becoming a Patreon on his Patreon page. If you do, send him a note and say you found him through us. You can do that on his Facebook page at Michael Heron Music 
or his Twitter, at Michael Heron. Thanks everyone for listening. Here's When Will It Bloom, the known space remix, off the album Tentative Armor Reworks. Talk to y'all soon.
rising from the depths of a state called Michigan. Two inebriated dorks prepare their plan for intergalactic domination. Mixing their extensive knowledge of geek culture with their insatiable thirst for alcohol, these two man-children bring you a show like you've never heard before. They will tell you tales from faraway lands and have you questioning their taste in beer. But make no mistake, friend, for the best coverage of your favorite comics, films, and TV shows, there's no better source for you to get your fix. So listen up, strap in, and prepare yourself as Jake and Tom conquer the world. Hey everyone, I am Perry Johnson. I am Lindsay Johnson. We host Hello Live WTF, a weekly podcast where we discuss relationships, parenting, marriage, death, life, uh, health, and all the WTF that comes with it. And we have a very blunt opinion about things. Uh, you can find us on iTunes. And Stitcher. And SoundCloud. Uh, Podknife. Yeah, of course. We'd love to get to know you better, so join us on Facebook or Twitter at Hello Live WTF. And remember... You decide decide what the the F is for. The Cult of Domesticity is a weekly podcast created by two best friends who share a love of history, true crime, literature, somewhat current events, and everything else in between. Join us every Thursday as we cover things that interest us and hopefully you too. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and most other podcast listening apps. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and we cannot wait to hear from you. Bye. Bye. It's been a thousand years since the Celestial War, and the great races were rendered extinct. A thousand years since the establishment of the Decladine Empire, and peace came over Pylos. But an ancient secret that promises of untold power has broken the Alliance and threatens to destroy the realm. Join our heroes, Tash. Grab Daryl. Get out. I will follow you. Go. Silverpaw. You pay for this, Sylvia. Craig. Someone is looking for you. The name Tash. And Bagger. Let's get dangerous. As they uncover dangerous secrets, ancient cities and race against time and the Empire itself to save Pylos. Download The Stranger Lands now before it's too late. Any books you read in school that you'd like to throw 20,000 leagues under the sea? Does the Odyssey feel like an odyssey to get through? Wonder what temperature you'd have to burn Ray Bradbury's novels at? If you often ask yourself these questions and more, check out our podcast. I'm Katrina. And I'm Carly. We're the co-hosts of Dimly Lit. We read classic literature and try to figure out what the hell is going on. You can find us everywhere you get your podcasts. Mothership Media.
Hello. Hello! You're welcome to BSP, the Idiot Syncrasy Files. A podcast where two idiots debate strange phenomena. I'm Cody, I'm the skeptic. And I'm Chris, I'm the believer. And in this special commercial sode, we're taking you down memory lane and sharing our favorite episodes. What was yours? Um, I liked the simulacra episode where Jesus gets burned into toast and I got to debunk it by burning loaves of bread until we made a rabbit. And yours? Mine, uh, Skinwalkers, because that one scared the... You know what? Out of me. <laughs> Out of a lot of people. <laughs> you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts by searching BS Pod PHX. Bye. Bye. Bye.